So does anybody have questions from last time about lecture? This is what we did last time. Oh, can we get the posting results? Oh, excellent. Okay, so last time we tried to define a reversible process as where you take a thermodynamic system and you do something to it slowly enough so that it stays in equilibrium. That way when you re-undo that process, it comes back to the same state. And some bright students in here said, oh, what about my toast? With you. Yes. Huh? No? I think if you did it really slow, it wouldn't toast. So, the toast, the toast answer... It's like boiling a frog. That's right. The toast answer and the frog-boiling answer is that toast and frogs are not in thermal equilibrium. Your toast... We know frogs are not in thermal equilibrium, right? Because <laughs> frogs... <laughs> frogs are a living system, and living systems are not in thermal equilibrium with their environment. They are doing things, okay, in order to keep themselves out of thermal equilibrium. You do not want to be in thermal equilibrium with your environment. That's right. <laughs> because then you die. Toast is not in thermal equilibrium. That's, that's the answer to the toast problem. Wait, is bread not in thermal equilibrium? Bread is not in thermal equilibrium. Bread came... Bread came from the living organism. Living organisms are not in thermal equilibrium. You processed it a little bit. Toast is in a metastable state. That's what it is. Your bread is in a metastable state. So, for example, if you tried to toast it, you'd have a chemical reaction that took it to a lower energy state. That's what happens. It's uh, a bit of, of combustion going on. So the, the carbon molecules cook, and they convert themselves into more stable forms of carbon. So, in fact, toast is not subject to our reversible conditions because toast is not in equilibrium. Boy, I'm seeing blank stairs out there. <laughs> bread, bread does not start off in, in thermal equilibrium. It's just the fact that those molecules are not as stable as they could be. Okay. Now, okay, so that's, okay, I, yeah, I understand the blank stairs because you're thinking, well, that's not really fair. You know, most things, if I step in and burn them, I could also change their state. And sometimes we're going to claim that things are in thermal equilibrium. So you have to compare then you know, the various energy states available to the system you're looking at, right? So with a piece of bread, bread really is metastable, okay? And if you cook it, you can get it into a lower energy state. So after you cooked it into a hunk of carbon, right, if you cooked toast long enough, it would eventually come out all black, just a pile of carbon. I'm sorry? You would need a lot of jelly. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't even think jelly would make it taste good at that point. but. You cook it all in the carbon. Now you could do all, you know, lots of thermodynamic processes on it that were reversible and would not go change again. So that's that's the toast answer. Toast is not in thermal equilibrium. It's in a metastable state. It's a pretty good metastable state. But it's not that stable, right? Because if you left your toast, if you left your toast out on the counter, it's also going to change. Little organisms will eat it. So what was your question, Kyle? What about a steak? What about a steak? Is it the same thing? <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it doesn't turn into carbon. It's like. Well, you, I'm um, sure you could get it. Yeah. <laughs> you could cook it in well, carbon. In fact, the uh, the Society of Physics students is having a cookout at my house in a couple weeks. You are. What? You are. I guess it hasn't been announced to you guys yet, but I was told you guys were all coming over. Um, and I have a grill, and you can, if you want to bring your own steak, try. You may try cooking the steak to carbon. Or after we're done making the good food. Right. Right.
Right, what? Yeah. Okay. This is not another question. You can try that experiment too, the vacuum chamber. Yes, your your question about cooking food is yes, in general correct. Most foods that you're going to eat are not in in true thermodynamic equilibrium when you eat them anyway. But that's, that's also because they came from living organisms. Living organisms are not in thermal equilibrium. They produce byproducts that are not in thermal equilibrium. Well, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, think you could still, I think you could still cook freeze-dried foods. Okay, so in this class, we're going to deal with much simpler systems, such as gases, ideal gases, you know, things that, are, that we can say are, are in true thermodynamic equilibrium. Cool. Yeah. All right, so last time we studied the Boltzmann factor, which is... Uh, e to the minus energy cost over temperature. And remember, we're working in units where temperature has the same units as energy. We, uh, so there's a, there's a Boltzmann factor wrapped up in there if you want to get Kelvin back. And the Boltzmann factor is the following. It's the ratio of probabilities that you find a system with energy E versus finding it with energy zero. Okay. So the relative probability of finding it in those two states depends on the exponent, E to the minus uh, energy cost over temperature. And we got that by looking at the ratio of the multiplicities. And then we took a Taylor expansion. Question? With that equation you have there? Yes. Does it matter if there's other states in between zero and epsilon or? Actually, it doesn't. It only depends on the energy difference. Okay. So you're right. If I did it more generally, I would say P of E1 over P of E2 is E to the minus energy difference over temperature. Yeah, good question. Any other questions about that one? Okay, the partition function is defined as the sum over all available states of the Boltzmann factor. So sum over sum over the states of e to the minus energy over tau, where tau is temperature. The heat capacity we defined as du by d temperature at constant volume. We also began to appreciate the magic of the partition function, which is that once you know the partition <coughs> function, and the partition function tells you something about the weighting factor of every available state. It's how it, it's, it's got information in it about how likely that state is to happen. So now you know how to calculate weighted averages because now you can put in, for example, here we want the average energy. We take the partition function and insert inside of a return the quantity we want to average over, then divide by the partition function. We found that that was related to a derivative of the log of the partition function and you get more practice with that in your homework. Reversible processes are slow enough to remain in equilibrium the whole time, which means they had to start off in equilibrium as well. So if it starts in equilibrium, you do something to it that keeps it in equilibrium, you'll be able to get it back to its original state. Pressure, we define, uh, well, we derive this uh, expression for the pressure by starting from an expression for work. Since work is the integral of a force over the distance it acts, we converted that into what we need for thermodynamic systems, which is an integral of pressure over the volume change. So if I have a balloon, for example, and I blow it up, as the balloon expands, the balloon uh, surface is doing work on the outside environment in order to expand and get that space available to itself. That's integral PDV. And from that, we saw that the pressure was defined as the minus uh, negative derivative of the internal energy with respect to volume. So it's about 
a change in internal energy with respect to volume at constant entropy. The thermodynamic identity is very important. So the differential of the internal energy we saw was tau d sigma minus PdV, which is basically energy changes are heat in minus work out. And when you see these thermodynamic identity statements, which by the way, you should memorize this one. Memorize that du is tau d sigma minus PdV, okay? And they always occur in conjugate pairs. Temperature is, is thermodynamically conjugate to entropy. Pressure is thermodynamically conjugate to volume. Thermodynamic, uh, thermodynamically conjugate pairs mean you can control one variable or the other, but you may not control both at the same time. So when you choose your experimental setup, you will choose to control either temperature or entropy, and you will choose to control either pressure or volume. Any, any questions about last time? Okay, so moving on to today. Today, we will define the Helmholtz free energy. And just as we talked about the differential of the internal energy, U, and that was the thermodynamic identity, we're going to look at the differential of the free energy. That will allow us to define some new, uh, new definitions of pressure, for example. We're going to derive Maxwell relations. In fact, I will derive a Maxwell relation, and then you will derive a Maxwell relation today. Free energy and the partition function, so we will make that relationship concrete. And then we will get into how you study an ideal gas and what the idea of quantum concentration is. So first off, free energy. Most of the day you see is about free energy. Now remember what thermodynamically conjugate variables are. When you see two variables together in these energy differentials, so here for example, change of entropy, sorry, change of internal energy at constant entropy, that's equal to P delta V, okay? Normally, I would have had uh, tau d sigma minus PdV. So here we go. PdV is what's left over if I hold the entropy constant. When you see uh, variables together like that, they're thermodynamically conjugate. You'll hold one or the other constant, but not both. Now, here's the question for this. If this is the thermodynamic identity, du is tau d sigma minus PdV, memorize that now and make your life easier, it's basically heat in minus work out, which of the variables that are up there, there are five variables, U, temperature, sigma, pressure, volume, which of those scale with the system size? Scale with the system size means I take the system, copy it, and add it back to itself to make the system twice as big. Which variables will get bigger when I do that, and which variables will remain the same? Okay, sigma U and V. All right, so volume sort of makes sense because I take the system, copy it, and add it back to itself. So obviously I double the volume. The entropy, we also, we defined entropy as the logarithm of multiplicities just so that we could get that property out of it, right? We wanted something that we could add to <coughs> together and get more of it by adding. And the internal energy is defined in the same way. And it also makes intuitive sense to write that if I take a system, copy it, add it back to itself, I didn't change the temperature. Why should the temperature change? I didn't change the pressure either. Okay. So this is the concept of um, there we go. This is the concept of intensive and extensive variables. Extensive variables are whatever scales with the system class. Internal energy, entropy, volume. As I make the system larger, those will get bigger. 
intensive variables don't scale with the size of the system. If I copy the system exactly, add it back to itself, temperature didn't change, pressure didn't change. And we'll see that every time we, okay, so these, these energies, right, so if you're looking at an energy, that's something that needs to scale with the size of the system. If I have more stuff, I have more energy. These conjugate pairs always come in a pair such that one is intensive and one is extensive. So, for example, sigma and tau are conjugate pair. Sigma is extensive, tau is intensive. V and P are conjugate. Okay, volume is extensive, pressure is intensive. So basically, I take the system, copy it, add all those variables back to themselves. Energy doubled, entropy doubled, volume doubled, but temperature and pressure didn't. So it's mainly a vocabulary definition, right? Intensive versus extensive variables. But when you get that, um, when you get that down, it'll help you get these thermodynamically conjugate pairs correct. That's the extensive column. That's the intensive column. Now, what's nice about the internal energy? Okay, the internal energy is basically look at the system find all the energy I can, okay, the energy of every particle all added up together equals the internal energy of the system, the total internal energy. And the total internal energy is, is actually a proper function of the extensive variables in the system. It's a function of entropy and volume. Now, how do I know what things to say it's a function of, right? Notice I didn't say it's a function of temperature and pressure because I, I chose, right, I chose uh, sigma rather than temperature, I chose volume rather than pressure. So when you see this thermodynamic identity, this energy functional here, okay, is using sigma as a variable and volume as a variable. Those are the control variables. So that's, that's why I say when I write down what are the things that the internal energy is properly a function of, it's the entropy and the volume, it's the things that work in the differentials. So that's the right energy to talk about if you have, or at least that's the right energy to use to characterize the system if you have a system where you can control volume and you can control entropy. So if you have control over those, those variables, the internal energy is the right way to be characterizing the system. That's hard though. It's a bit hard to hold entropy constant. Okay? It's a lot easier to set up an experimental system where we can hold temperature constant. So what I'd like to do is find what's the right energy description, okay, if I'm going to hold temperature constant instead. So that's, that's where we're headed. And what we'll see is that the answer to that question is the free energy. Do you have any questions so far? If you find a way to hold entropy constant, come talk to me. We'll patent it, okay? All right. So the Helmholtz free energy is defined as the following. S is the Helmholtz free energy. It's the internal energy minus temperature times entropy. So we just subtract off a thermodynamic pair. This is the right energy to use if you have an experimental setup where you can hold a volume constant and you can hold a temperature constant. Because what we will we'll show this in just a second, but having subtracted off temperature times entropy will mean that the free energy is properly a function of volume and temperature. So what's nice about this, the Helmholtz free energy is it's going to turn out to be the thing that's minimized during thermodynamic processes where you control 
volume and temperature. So when you hold volume and temperature constant, you can actually say that your free energy is trying to minimize itself. And that will be a direct result of the fact that entropy wants to maximize itself during thermodynamic processes. So, and it turns out to be, uh, the reason this was called the free energy is it turns out to be equal to the available work in the system if you're holding volume and temperature constant. Right, that gets a star. F is U minus tau sigma. Gets a star. So now we're going to show what the proper variables are. Okay. Any questions so far about where we're headed? <laughs> okay. So now we're, we're going to derive some properties about the free energy. Here's the thermodynamic identity. du is tau d sigma minus PdB. That's basically change of internal energy is heat in minus work out. And I have the new definition. F is defined as u minus tau sigma. So to get the differential of the free energy, I take the differential of this equation. F is u minus tau sigma. So on the left-hand side, F becomes dF. On the right-hand side, u becomes du. Minus tau sigma, I need to use the product rule for. That becomes minus tau d sigma, minus sigma d tau. See what I did? Just, just change a little bit. Well, sorry, the product rule. Now I substitute in du, remember, was tau d sigma minus pdv. So substitute that in. And you'll notice tau d sigma is canceling the other tau d sigma. And I'm left over with, here's the answer, df, the differential of the free energy, is minus PDV minus sigma d tau. Okay, so I got a new, new form for the energy differential because this is a different type of energy. It's not the internal energy, it's the free energy. It's the energy that's available to do work if you control variables of volume and temperature. And these are the right variables now for F. When I look at these energy differentials and I find that dB and the d tau, that means free energy is properly a function of temperature and volume. Any questions about what I just did? It's mainly mathematical relations. But it's got a very important physical significance that this is the energy that's extractable. What you just saw is called the Legendre transform. It's when we take a, one of the energy functions, okay, we started with the internal energy, do something to it, uh, subtract or add thermodynamically conjugate pairs to get ourselves into a different type of energy that represents the system. So we Legendre transformed from the internal energy to the free energy by subtracting temperature times entropy. It gave us a new energy functional whose proper variables are different. Now we can talk about free energy, which is a function of temperature and volume. It's much easier to hold temperature and volume constant. Ah, okay. There's something else. There's actually quite a few of these different energy functionals. Uh, Later in your book, then, we'll introduce the Gibbs free energy. The Gibbs free energy is a function of temperature and pressure. Okay, so how would you build up the Gibbs free energy? Start, start from this one. You have a, the free energy, Helmholtz free energy, is a function of temperature, so that's fine. Leave the temperature alone. What would you want to do to convert from V to P? Yeah, why do you want to do that? Because last time you added tau d sigma, like of the opposite, you added the same thing back to the opposite sign. Right. In order to get right, I I added or subtracted the right thermodynamic pair to change the differential. So you're right. If I have this 
So dF involves a minus p dV. So if I add V times P to the Helmholtz free energy, that would be the way to get the Gibbs free energy. That's how these always work. So there we go. We can do similar things with P and V and use the, the Gibbs free energy. Wow. Who decided that to come on? Sorry, that was overanimated. <laughs> there you go. At least it prints out in your notes in a reasonable manner. So here, okay, let's do that. Let's let's look at the Gibbs free energy. So the Gibbs free energy, like you told me, I should take the, the Helmholtz free energy, which is a function of temperature and volume, and add P times V. So now I do the same thing. G on the left-hand side becomes DG. F becomes DF. P times V becomes PDV plus VDP. Uh, the product rule there. And now since DF was minus PDV minus sigma D tau, minus PDV and PDV will cancel just like you wanted. And I'm left over with DG, the differential that gives free energy, is minus sigma D tau plus VDP. Okay. So that's a, an energy functional whose proper uh, variables are temperature and pressure. And that's the right energy to use if your control variables are temperature and pressure. Okay. Chemists like this one. Okay. Because they can often hold temperature and pressure. Any questions about how that works? So there's, there's the answer. We Legendre, that was another Legendre transform. We Legendre transformed from one conjugate variable to another, right? Because the Helmholtz free energy was in terms of V. We changed that to P by doing the Legendre transform. So we're going to go back to the Helmholtz free energy because it's the one that's interesting for us now. When we get to chapter 9, we will come back to the Gibbs free energy. And we'll see other types of free energy after we learn about chemical potential, then we'll have to worry about new thermodynamic variables. That will come up in chapter five. So what was interesting about the Helmholtz free energy, okay, is not only is it temperature and volume is a holding constant, but it's also the energy that stays minimized if I have a process where temperature and volume are held constant and I do something else in the system. So basically, here's the <coughs> mathematical statement of that. If dV is zero and d tau is zero, that is, if I do a process to the system that holds the volume and temperature constant, then dF is zero, okay, the change of the free energy is zero, which will mean that it's an extremum, okay, either a maximum or a minimum, okay, as I do those processes. But we need to figure out if it's a minimum. This is a bit like, yeah, what, what gets a little bit weird in statistical mechanics and thermodynamics is we start talking about, uh, derivatives in kind of odd ways, okay? But when you see this df is zero, if I had written that as df by d something is zero, you would say, oh, that's the first derivative. When the first derivative of something goes to zero, I know that the function is either at a maximum or a minimum. Okay, same principle here. I'm just leaving out the bottom, okay? Saying if, uh, if these two are true, okay, if db is d tau is zero, then df is also zero, which means the function is at a minimum. So it's the Helmholtz free energy that gets minimized in these processes where temperature and volume are constant. So let's just see that in action, okay? The, let me have a, a system, S, hooked up to a reservoir, which we'll label R, okay, system and reservoir. Now, if I look at the entropy, the entropy should be maximized. If I put these two in contact, contact and let them thermally equilibrate, right? You saw that that's 
that's what, what entropy is about. It's the thing that will maximize when you put these in contact. So I can talk about the total uh, entropy of the system as sigma reservoir plus sigma s. Okay, just add the two entropies together. And what are the variables here? The entropy of the reservoir is a function of whatever the energy of the reservoir is. If I say that u is the total energy, then u minus u sub s, where s is the system, this, this is the energy of the reservoir. Okay, so energy of reservoir is total energy minus whatever energy is in the system. And then u sub s is the label I'll use for the energy in the system. Now, I'd like to do a, uh, a Taylor expansion. Remember, there's only two things that physicists know how to do, right? First is a Taylor expansion. Do you remember the second? Harmonic oscillator. That's right. Okay. Right. If you're a physics major, you have to know how to do those things while you're sleeping. All right. So here, let's take a Taylor expansion of the reservoir's entropy. Okay. So now that becomes sigma r of u minus u sub s d sigma by du. Okay. So that's just a, a another form of a, of a Taylor expansion. What's important to spot here, though, is that the sigma by du, you know what that is. That's the temperature in disguise, right? It's 1 over the temperature. So spot the temperature, okay? Now I see that what this really is, is the total entropy is the entropy in the reservoir at, at u, okay? See what I did there? I did kind of a sneaky change of variables, right? the reservoir's energy is really a function of u minus us. By Taylor expanded around, well, what if that had been the total energy? Okay, if it had been sigma reservoir, if it had all the energy and left none for the system. So then, then I can write the total uh, entropy as reservoir entropy is a function of total u minus u sub s1 over tau. Okay, so uh, energy in the system divided by temperature. This quantity here, those two together, is still the entropy in the reservoir. It's just a new expression for it. Now, plus sigma s uh, as a function of u, u of s. Sigma r of total energy is a constant. That's why I wanted to do that. No matter how much I change the energy division between the two things, between the reservoir and the system, the total energy remains the same. I'm not allowed to change total energy. So, whatever's left over here, okay, is taking into account changes that can happen. So let's just rearrange this a little bit. If I pull out a one of our temperature from both sides, then energy comes down, sigma comes down, there's a minus and a minus to make it a plus sign, okay? And this thing that's in the middle here, ha, 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 I hope you spot that, u minus tau sigma. Free energy, okay, all right. We're free, all right, so that's now the total entropy, okay, is entropy of the reservoir, at big U minus free energy of the system, small system. Okay. So all we did was take the total entropy, right? We did a Taylor expansion in the middle here, which was a good approximation as long as the reservoir is very large compared to the system we're interested in. Okay, so as long as that's true, this was an okay step. And then we manipulated things so that we could get the total entropy in terms of some constant, okay, entropy of the reservoir this function of total energy, that was a constant, minus the free energy of the small system. So now we see that when we maximize the total entropy, which we know happens, okay, that has to happen because when I put two systems in thermal contact, their multiplicities adjust so as to find the largest multiplicity, which maximizes the entropy. 
And if this thing on the left is a maximum, then the free energy is a minimum. So by maximizing entropy, we minimize the free energy. Okay, when we have this case where temperature and volume are the right variable. Are there any questions about that? Okay. So the, the nice thing here is Helmholtz free energy is minimized. In thermodynamic processes. <coughs> now, just as we did with the with the uh, internal energy, we looked at differentials of the internal energy and we got definitions of temperature, for example, out of that and pressure. We can do the same thing and get definitions of entropy and pressure out of the Helmholtz free energy. So the Helmholtz free energy is a function of temperature and volume. Remember how uh, total differentials work. Uh, this is a, a general formula for a total differential. If I have a function f, which is a, which is a function of x, y, and z, it's total differential, df total, is df by dx holding everything else constant times dx plus df by dy holding everything else constant times dy plus df by dz times dz holding everything else constant. It's a bit like a gradient. Okay, it's a bit like a gradient. Um, you can see all the math at mathworld.com if you look up total differential, what a total differential is. So we're generally interested in, interested in total differentials in statistical mechanics. So here our free energy, okay, the change in the Helmholtz free energy, minus sigma d tau minus PdV. Well, we know that because we already derived it. Okay. So now what I want to do is look at those variables more formally. Okay. So since I know the formula for a total derivative goes like goes like this, I can fill in the formula for a total derivative of the free energy, right? What are the variables of the free energy? the proper variables. Yeah, temperature and volume. So I'll just replace these okay, with the proper variables. So DF total, the total differential of the free energy, is DF by D tau holding volume constant times D tau, plus DF by DV holding temperature constant times DV. That's it. It has to be mathematically true. Okay? As soon as I tell you that free energy is a function of temperature and volume, you know that's true. We also know physically Right, based on what we derived from the thermodynamic identity, that df is minus sigma d tau minus PdV. Both are true, so now I can find identities, right? I know now, if I compare those, that df by d tau is minus sigma. I just compare them. And I know that df by dv is minus p. Okay, just compared relations. So we have some new expressions here. Okay, and you can always write new expressions like that every time you make up a new free energy functional. So the entropy is minus df by d tau at constant volume. Pressure is minus df by dv at constant temperature. Any questions about that? Okay. The reason I want to make it clear exactly what comes from where and what these variables are is that we also derived last time a similar expression for the pressure, but it was in terms of differentials of the internal energy. Okay. So I believe our expression was uh, pressure is minus du by dv at constant entropy, which is a little bit different from this. Now it's minus df by dv at constant temperature. It, you know, how you express these things just depends on what, what control variables you have in your experiment. <coughs> so let's, let's explore this new pressure relation a little bit, okay? So the new pressure relation says that pressure is minus the change in free energy for change in volume, called the constant temperature, but I can re-express free energy 
and internal energy minus tau sigma. So let's see what happens there. I'm just using F equals U minus tau sigma. And I'll take the D by DV of all those terms. Okay, see where I'm heading. Now, first term is minus DU by DV. Okay, here I have to take the product rule uh, with the derivative of tau times sigma. So the next terms are plus sigma d tau by dv, plus tau d sigma by dv. And, ah, what, is, what happens in the next step? I drop the term. Why? Well, is it a constant? Is it the kind of constant I can drop, though? What's the constant? I think you're right. But d tau holding tau constant. Yeah. Pardon? It's d tau holding tau constant. Okay, which is zero. Okay, so the constant equals zero. All right, good. So I can take that. Okay, that one, that one goes away. Middle term there, gone. So the total expression for, for pressure, we had a total expression before, but I've re-expressed it in terms of its constituent parts, just to see what the physics is. Okay, so pressure here, I've now re-expressed it as minus du by dv at constant temperature. Okay plus temperature times the sigma by dv at constant temperature. All of this is held at constant temperature. And what's interesting physically, okay, is that I've broken up the pressure into two different terms. This guy here is about the internal energy. This contribution is about the entropy. So in a sense, we can kind of break up pressures as being from two different physical phenomena. This one, this <coughs> term is from the, the energy. There's an internal energy contributing to the pressure in any system. And this one is about the entropy. There's an entropy inside any system contributing to its pressure. Okay, physically it's all going to boil down to, uh, you know, operationally if I have a gas, for example, when gas molecules whack into the wall, how much force per unit area are they applying on average? But you know, as far as as where What's the source of that pressure? Is it internal energy or is it entropy? It's both. But it turns out that in solids, it's the energy that's dominating this. Solids, okay, let me ask you this. Which, if I took a solid, let's take, uh, let's take gaseous um, oxygen, okay? And then let me, you know, crystallize it you can do that. Let's just say I could take the oxygen molecules and put them in a crystal and modest and make them solid. Which form, gas or solid, do you think, let's use a better example, CO2. Okay, we know CO2 can do both. CO2 can crystallize and form uh, dry ice, or as it melts off and evaporates, it becomes gaseous. Which, which form has higher entropy? Okay, why do you say that? Because it's more stuff it can do, right? The gas can move around a lot more. The solid can't do that. Now, what what happens physically in those two forms is that when something is solid, it's the energy pressure that's dominant. Kind of weird. You don't really think about solids as having a pressure, but I, the table does have a pressure, right? When I push on it, it pushes back. Okay, so it does have a pressure. It's just that when I when I push on the table. It's the internal energy that's pushing back at me because this term is huge in the solid, du by dv. If I try to compress the table and change its volume, that would change its internal energy way too much, and I just can't do it. So that's the term that dominates the pressure in a solid. In a gas, um, it's different. It's, it's basically the entropy that's driving most of the pressure in a gas. It's the fact that the gases can do so many different things and they have uh, an entropy pressure associated with them. Any questions about that?
Okay. Now, aha, okay. Trying to figure out how much time. Why don't we take, before I show you how to derive a Maxwell relation, I'm going to take a seven-minute break, okay? All right, so uh, you can count it from the clock. Seven minutes, all right? And then we'll come back and, and take a Maxwell relation. Okay, break's over. So the next thing I want to teach you, now that you've seen how to take these energy differentials and do things with them, is how to derive what's called Maxwell relations. And they look kind of boring at first. Here's a Maxwell relation, but they're actually really useful if you only have partial information about a system. So here's a Maxwell relation. <coughs> d sigma by dv at constant temperature is d pressure by d tau at constant volume. That's kind of weird. Okay, if I take a system, take a closed system, uh, if I change the entropy, right, the entropy by the volume held at constant temperature would be the same as if I changed the pressure with respect to the temperature, the pressure by the temperature, at constant volume. This is not an obvious relation at all. Okay, it's one of those things that we derive it at first. People go, ooh, ah, that's really neat. Okay, it's all going to go back to the fact that we're dealing with, with uh, energy differentials. So I'll show you how to derive this. There's several different natural relations out there. And actually, uh, in graduate statistical mechanics and graduate thermodynamics, they like to torture you in homework sets by making you derive lots of these. But they're easy. So you're going to derive one today and show how easy it is. And then when you get to graduate school, your life will be wonderful. Kyle? So is what this is saying, like, if you change the pressure and you held the volume constant, the entropy would change as well? Or is it saying only that it would be the same as if you changed it? Let's see, I think of these more as measurements. So let me, let me tell you how I think of it, and then you can tell me if that's the same way you were thinking of it. I'm thinking, I have a system, so I'm going to a system, and I'm going to do a measurement. I'm going to do the following measurement. Take the system, hold the volume constant, okay? Now I'm going to take data, okay, holding the volume constant. Now I will change the temperature, okay, temp a little temperature knob. At every new temperature, I'm going to take a pressure, and I'll plot it pressure versus temperature, and then I'll take the slope, dp by dt, at constant volume, okay? okay? And that'll, that dp by dt will be a number, just the slope of the line I get. I'll compare that now. Now I'm going to start over. Start with the same system in the same initial conditions. Now I'm going to control the temperature. Temperature will be held constant. And now I'm going to change the volume of the system. I'll have it in some tub where I have a piston on top that I can control the volume. So now I'll make a new plot. I'll change the volume and I'll measure the entropy. And I'll change the volume and I'll measure the entropy. Now the slope of that line is the same. Okay? Okay. Now, here is why you care about max relations. Which experiment is easier to do? The first one, right? So maybe you need the sigma by dv at constant temperature, okay? But you only know how to measure pressure by the temperature at constant volume. Okay, so now you know the other relation as well. Okay. Does that make sense? Any other questions about, about this guy? Okay. All right, so now, now let's derive it. We'll show that it's true. Okay, here we go. There are two control variables, just like we said how we would set the thing up experimentally. 
we would have two control variables, volume and temperature. We'd hold one constant and then the other constant. So you see how we have two control variables, temperature and volume. That means we're thinking about things in terms of a Helmholtz free energy. Okay. Now, all right, so here's a basic structure. I'm just showing you graphically what the basic structure is. You have two control variables, okay, which means on the left-hand side of the equation, you take a derivative with respect to volume and hold temperature constant. This is the two control. On the right-hand side, you'll take a derivative with respect to temperature and hold volume constant. Okay, so this is the two control variables. And whatever you see down here, right, this temperature is being held constant, put its conjugate variable up top. And over here, you see the volume being held constant, put its conjugate variable up top. That's how you can construct these. Uh, you know, without doing too much work. You won't know the sign, okay? You have to know the sign to get the, to get the relation entirely correct. But that's the basic structure, okay? Two, two control variables, temperature, volume, put the conjugate up top. So how do you derive it? We already saw that pressure is minus the F by dB at constant temperature. Okay, that's how the pressure is defined in terms of the free energy. We saw that the entropy is minus the F by d tau at constant volume. Those were first derivatives of the free energy. Now we're just going to take the second derivative. Okay? That's, that's the entire magic of taking a, a Maxwell relation. So the second derivative of the free energy is d squared f by d tau by dv. What we really mean is take uh, d, d by dv at constant temperature, d by dt at constant volume. That's what those partials mean if I unpack them uh, of the free energy. And notice I can take them in any order, as long as things are smooth, okay, which we are generally making that assumption in thermodynamics, then I can reverse the order of the partials. So d squared f by d tau dv is the same as d squared f by dv d tau. Same thing. Order doesn't matter. Now, if I look at this, okay, now I have two different ways to derive the, free, the second derivative of the free energy. Minus d squared f dv by d tau is here, okay, d by dv of sigma, right, because sigma was minus the by d tau. So that goes there. But I could just as easily have said, well, it's also d by d tau pressure because pressure is df by dv. You see how they're both second derivatives of the free energy. So there's the maximum relation, right? The way I got it was I took the energy differential, okay, I took one derivative and then I took a second derivative and I set both, both of the ways to take the second derivative equal to each other. d sigma by dv at constant temperature is dp by d tau at constant volume. Make sense? Do you believe that you could derive any Maxwell relation now? I give you a free energy functional. You figure out what the variables are. Take the first derivative, take the second derivative, set them equal to each other. Maxwell relation, right? Okay? And there's one Maxwell relation for each energy type out there. Yes, this gets a star. Now, when I say the star, what this means in this case is I don't want you to memorize the Maxwell relation, but I want you to know how to derive it. Okay? Start with the energy, take two derivatives. So, here's, here's the fun today. You get to derive the Maxwell relation corresponding to the Gibbs free energy. How many people do we have? 20 is not divisible by 3, but it's close. Um, break up into groups of 3 and 
derives a Maxwell relation corresponding to the Gibbs free energy. Okay? Do you want my help breaking up, or can you, are you friendly enough to break up in your own groups of three? Okay, ready? Go! Break up in groups of three, four, four. Work together, derive the new Maxwell relation. That's, that's your problem. Derive the Maxwell relation corresponding to the Gibbs free energy. Okay. Most most people look look pretty done. Is anybody brave enough to send their friend up here to the board to work it out? Brave enough to send their friend. Yeah, brave enough to send their friend. I see all these fingers pointing. <laughs> Come on, who's brave? Somebody's brave. Come on, come on up. Show us how it's done. I'm brave. Do I need to start bringing in candy? All right, tell you what, I have a candy bar in my office. Whoever's brave enough to go up to the front and derive it, you don't. <laughs> but I saw Julia's hand first. As soon as I said candy bar. <laughs> Okay. Tell us how it's done. Ask them for the brand of the candy bar first. You don't know. I hope I don't like it. I have Snickers and Twix. I have Snickers. I want Twix. Okay. Can I start with DG is equal to minus sigma d tau? Can you show us how you got it? Yeah. Yeah. Show us how you got it from something we already had. Okay. I didn't write down the equation for this. Okay. So what was the equation? It's over there. It's F plus BB. Sorry, that would be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh yeah, I keep looking on the board, like you do stuff on the board. Yeah. Okay. So then D, G is equal to D, plus E, T, E, T, E, I'm going to roll this up, because it's
So from this equation, we get the relation that sigma is equal to minus eg e tau at constant pressure, and that uh, pressure, or sorry, volume is equal to dg depressure at constant temperature. So um, in order to take the second derivative of the free energy, um, you take it at both its variables at temperature and at pressure. So this is equal to I guess I don't like to say words a lot, but I'm sorry. I'm bad at explaining things. I think you're fine. <laughs> okay. So <coughs> this derivative is equal to, it's the same thing as doing this by taking first the derivative with respect to pressure and holding the temperature constant, and then taking <coughs> the derivative with respect to temperature and holding the pressure constant. And we know from derivatives that um, it doesn't matter which way, like which derivative you take first, you can change the order in which you take the derivative, but it's still the same. So. so from that idea, um, we can get the following relation. And, uh, Okay, and the answer is? So that would be your final relation? Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So, okay. Thanks. All right, I'm going to give Julia a report. Well, well-earned candy bar. Okay. So this has the usual, usual form, right? And that you're, you're taking a second derivative of the Gibbs free energy. The Gibbs free energy is control variables of temperature and pressure. So the Maxwell relation that comes out of it has one side a derivative with respect to pressure with the other control variable held constant. The other side has a derivative with respect to temperature with the other control variable held constant. It always turns out that when you look at whatever is held constant, you can put it conjugate up top. And here you can look at whatever is held constant and put it conjugate up top. Maybe. Just kind of a double check that, that it all worked out correctly. And you can actually see where the sign comes from, right? There's, there's a minus sign here on the left hand side. It started off from the energy differential. There was a minus sign in the energy differential. And it carried down both tracks. Any questions? Okay. You are now Maxwell relation derivation machines. Okay. And you can derive any Maxwell relations. There's, there's one for every, you know, there are several. Several thermodynamic variables out there. Every conjugate pair produces more Legendre transforms you can take. Okay, so there's a lot of different relations out there. But now you know how to drive any of them. Okay, good. So, moving on, we'd also like to understand the relation between the free energy and the partition function. This is when I say drop Helmholtz from now on. When I say free energy, I mean the Helmholtz free energy. Okay, F which is u minus tau sigma. 
So what we'd like to do is find a differential equation for the free energy and then go back and relate the free energy to the partition function. Okay? We actually know how to relate the internal energy to the partition function because the internal energy was and basically the average energy in the system. So we know how to take weighted averages, right? We take the partition function, insert the quantity we're interested in, divide by the total partition function again and that's a weighted average. So we actually know how to relate U to the internal energy, sorry, to the partition function. But now we'd like to do some manipulations here to relate the free energy back to the partition function. So free energy is U minus tau sigma. Sigma is minus dF by d tau at constant V. Okay. And now I'm going to relate, uh, change these a little bit. This actually is something that will probably help you on your homework. I like to use the new symbol beta for 1 over tau. You don't have to, but you have some of your homework in terms of derivatives of 1 over tau. If you rewrite that in terms of beta, just a new, new symbol, sometimes life is easier. So, in fact, I can also rewrite this guy, okay, in terms of beta df by the beta. Hmm. Alright, I think I skipped too many steps there tonight. Stick that on the board. That's not, that's not immediately obvious. Um, here, that's the part. <laughs> that's the part we want. Make sure that's correct, okay? So, um, Okay, let's take this. Let's take tau, tau df by d tau. And like we worked out in terms of beta. So I can say this is 1 over beta. Tau is 1 over beta, right? Beta is 1 over tau. And this is d uh, by d tau. Yeah. So here's the chain rule. See, b by d tau, df by d beta. Do you believe that? There's a chain rule list. So you get the beta in there. Okay. So d beta by d tau, if beta is 1 over tau, then d beta by d tau is minus 1 over tau squared. Got it? Okay. Equals minus beta squared. So I'll plug that in here. This is 1 over beta times minus beta squared f by d beta. Beta squared divided by beta. I'm going to minus beta f by d beta. I hope that. Yes, they even got the sign correct. Okay. So all I did was I took just putting in, filling in the steps from here to there. Should have put more steps on the slide. Make sense? Continuing then, I can also rewrite this guy, okay, now I'm going to take, use other derivative tricks, d of d beta f by d beta, okay, you don't really know why I'm taking that yet, so I'll clear it in a second, let me take that derivative, okay. Now if I, if I use the product rule, first thing that comes out is f times d beta by d beta, which is 1, so that's f. The next term is beta times df by d beta. But now I can look back up here and I see, well, f is u minus beta df by d beta. 
which means that u is f plus beta dx by d beta. Okay? Hmm. Follow that? Alright. So all, all I've done here is I did, I did some slick maneuvering, and I know that d of beta f by d beta is the internal energy. Okay? It's a bit odd, but, but you saw it happen. Okay. Now, remember how the partition function goes. Okay, we'll, we'll pick that line of argument up back up in just a second. But I, I want to remind you how to get the internal energy out of the partition function. The internal energy is the, the average energy in the system. So to get that, I take the partition function, which is sum over all states, e to the minus uh, e over tau for the energy of every particular state. I insert the energy in that summation, okay. and then I'll divide by the position function. That'll give me the average energy. You've already seen how, really, I can take this as uh, d by d1 over tau of the partition function, right? Because when I take d by d1 over tau of this exponent, the energy comes down. So it's sort of a slick way to control this. Now, a derivative divided by the function is the derivative of a log, so this is minus d by d1 over tau log of z, or if I want to use my slick parameter beta, its uh, internal energy is minus d by d beta log of z. Right. You've seen that before. You also get to play around with it on your homework and take it one step further to the, the uh, heat capacity. And remember, all ensemble averages can be expressed as derivatives of, of, of log of z. So we're going to remember that, that the internal energy is minus d by d beta log of z. Now we're back to our previous slide, right, where I derived that d by d beta of beta f is the internal energy, but internal energy is minus d by d beta log of z. Okay. So now you see why I was interested in this quantity. Okay, because I can relate it back to d by d beta log of z. Now if I integrate both sides with respect to beta, okay, or sorry, if I, if I look at Look at what I'm comparing here in the differential equation. I have that a, that a derivative of beta f is equal to the minus same derivative of log z. So the two functions are equal up to some additive constant. Okay? So it must be that beta f is equal to minus log z up to some additive constant. It turns out that the third law prevents extra terms out here. Okay? Third law was that law that entropy is going to approach zero as you lower the temperature. So sometimes this is rewritten as f is minus tau log z. Okay, since beta is one over tau. So anyway, here's the here's the structure in using both beta and uh, temperature. So the partition function actually here, if it's uh, free energy is minus 1 over beta log z. If I take now the exponent of both sides, I get that the partition function is actually e to the minus beta f. Okay. Where I could have rewritten the partition function as the sum of all states as e to the minus beta energy. Or if you like the tau language, it was free energy is minus tau log z. The partition function z then is e to the minus f over temperature equals the sum over e to the minus energy over temperature for all the individual states that are accessible. So this is kind of neat. Okay, you can get the free energy directly by summing over all the Boltzmann factors. You see the, the similarity here in the structure? That somehow 
the sum over e to the minus individual energies divided by temperature ends up being equal to e to the minus free energy over temperature. Okay. Are there any questions about that? All we did was demonstrate that now you know how to get the free energy out of the partition function. Okay. Oh, let's get to star. Um, I would say the important equation in the circle here is S is minus tau log C. That's the important one. So now we get started on the ideal gas. Uh, the ideal gas, uh, ideal is going to mean there aren't any interactions between the individual particles. Okay, so we're going to assume a bunch of non-interacting particles. And what we'd like to do is, is just start straight from the quantum description and see what kind of a partition function we should write down. So we're going to build up an, an ideal gas. What we like to do in physics is take complicated things and put them in a box because it's easier to do the math. Okay? So let me take one atom, there's an atom, put it in a box, cube of side L. That way I know exactly what the wave functions are. That's what's nice about this. At the end of the day, by the way, I could take the system size as large as I wanted and I could add more particles later. But the way to build this up is start with one particle in a box. And what I'd like to know is what's the partition function. Okay, one quantum particle in a box of length L, and basically it has a lot of energy states available to it. Okay, it's got all this, these quantized energy levels according to the, uh, the shape of the box, basically. Right, what we will assume is that the wave function of the particle in the box has to end at the box boundary. The wave function is zero on all the box boundaries. That way it's completely confined, but then the wave function has, can have no nodes, can have one node, two nodes, three nodes, can also have nodes in each direction independently. So the total wave function is a bunch of sine waves, basically. The total wave function is an amplitude A times sine of n pi x <coughs> over L, okay, where x is in the x direction, sine of n pi y over L, y direction part, sine of n pi v over L, those functions require that the wave function goes to zero at the edges. And yet they're basically symmetric. So all I'm assuming here is that the only energy around is the kinetic energy, okay, where the, the energy of, of the wave functions is associated basically with p squared over 2m. And the way you count that for a free wave function, okay, meaning a wave function that, that doesn't have any interactions in it, p squared over 2m is h bar squared k squared over 2m. Have you seen that before? Momentum being h bar k. And here I can find the, the k, well, well, there's a couple of ways to do this, but I can look directly in here, pull out the wavelength, convert the wavelength to k by k is 2 pi over the wavelength, for example. Or you can do this the quantum mechanical way, which is to say that the um, the momentum is minus, I'm going to get this wrong, I think it's minus i h bar d by dx. Good, all right. So you can do it the hard way by taking those derivatives. Okay, you can take two derivatives of this wave function and you'll get back um, this free energy. Okay. But it's, basically it's the kinetic energy of a wave function trapped inside of a box. So the partition function is always the following. It's always the sum over all states of e to the minus energy divided by tau. 
there's a tau. Okay. So what I've put in here is the energy, okay, just the, the uh, kinetic energy associated with the particle in the box. There's a lot of different kinetic energy states they could have. And this kinetic energy state has to do with uh, what is its wavelength, basically. How many oscillations does the wave function have? That's a bit interesting. I don't know how far you've gotten in your quantum mechanics courses. But wave functions that have a lot of curvature to them, right, because your momentum is minus h i h bar d by dx, that means momentum is about curvature of the wave function. Or that's about first derivatives. But basically, the, the wigglier a wave function is, the higher the kinetic energy. So really wiggly wave functions have high kinetic energy. So here, we have e to the minus energy over temperature. And when I say sum over all states, in this case, you know, what are all the states? Well, to sum over all the states that are accessible in the box, I have to say, well, the wave function could have no nodes in any direction. It could have one node in the x direction. It could have 14 nodes in the x direction and three in the y direction. Okay? So I basically count over these n's, okay, where n is controlling the number of wiggles of the wave function. So sum over all states is sum over nx and y and z. Okay? Uh, and actually, it's three separate summations. Uh, sum over all different combinations of nx and y and, and z, which again is controlling the number of nodes according to those equations. Any questions so far? Okay. So the atom in the box, partition function, is sum over nx and y and z, e to the minus energy over tau. I can convert that. What we're, what we're deriving here is the quantum concentration for. Uh, for an ideal gas, uh, which is related to, you know, what's the, what's the concentration of one atom confined to its own thermal de Broglie wavelength. But let's, let's see how the calculation goes. It's like I'm, I'm confining again one atom in a box, always atom in a box. And if I want this energy summation, another way to sum it, okay, is to take the integral from zero to infinity of d and x. Here I'm summing over all nx's, which is the number of nodes. Nodes, you know, zero nodes, one node, two nodes, so forth. So if um, if the states are relatively close together, or if the system size gets very large, for example, this is okay to take these as uh, integrals. So let me take them as integrals. So each of these summations is integral zero to infinity d and x, integral zero to infinity d and y, same thing d and z. But now you see that these are Gaussians, right? We like Gaussian integrals. I should say that's the third thing. This is not to do take Gaussian integrals. So, so you, can, you can evaluate this integral. Notice this, this parameter alpha that popped up. That's just everything that's left over. Add an h bar squared, a pi squared, over 2ml squared that I was tired of carrying around. Okay, all of those are just to make the units correct. So alpha squared is h bar squared, pi squared, over 2ml squared, tau. Okay, everything that's left over. And then you have a Gaussian. But they're all the same, right? No reason that nx is different from ny is different from nz because I said I want q. So, in fact, this is the same integral three times. So it's really integrate dnx e to the minus alpha squared nx squared times itself, okay, three times. So you know the answer here. I can just scale out the alpha, right? Since I have an alpha squared n squared, here where I have the n, I'd really like an alpha. I have to take one over alpha. OK, 
I can take an alpha divided by alpha to scale things out. So here's the 1 over alpha, but there are three of them. And I'm left over with integrate dnx e to the minus nx squared. That was a little bit unfair. I should have had a new variable there, something like dx e to the minus x squared, okay, where x is alpha nx. Technically correct, because any time inside of an integral, your variable is a dummy variable. You're integrating it out. Okay, but here, there was a change of variable. So you know the answer though, right? It's a Gaussian integral. The full Gaussian integral is always square root of pi. This is half the Gaussian integral, so it's square root of pi divided by 2. So I have three of them. There's a power of 3 there. So all together, the partition function, this is kind of fun, this whole mess, right, we started up with a mess, this whole mess we just calculated. We, do, we summed up the entire partition function for a single atom in a box. It is pi to the 3 halves, pi always comes up, doesn't it? Five to three half divided by eight alpha cubed, where alpha has all the physics information in it. It contains h bar, m, l squared, and so on. Okay. Any questions about how I got to that? The fact that in simple systems you can actually sum the partition function, right? It's formally a sum over all these different configurations. Sometimes you can actually take that and get a number out. If you can get, you know, some, well, it's not really a number, I'm sorry, it's a function, but you get one nice closed expression, now it's really easy to take derivatives, right, and to find the internal energy or to find the free energy and all those things and any, any expectation value you want. So that's why partition functions are so useful. Substituting the alpha back in, okay, and massaging, I get LQ divided by 2 pi h bar squared over m tau, all of that to the 3 halves. Okay, so I pulled out basically the volume. All of the L cubed is the volume of the box. So altogether, this partition function I can express as volume times the concentration. The concentration here was concentration is always number of particles per volume. I'm working with one particle, so it's really a one over volume. Partition functions have to be dimensionless, right? Because it's a sum over exponents, exponentials. So they're they're dimensionless. So if I pull out an L cubed up here, everything that's left in the denominator, even though it looks complicated, has the same units because the partition function is unitless. So this is a volume. L cubed is a volume. Whatever's left over, I'm going to declare to be the quantum concentration. Okay? Or I can rewrite this as NQ over N, the actual concentration. Okay, where little n is number of particles divided by volume. Here we go. <coughs> Okay. So the partition function of a single atom in a box, we can calculate directly. We can also uh, normalize this to what's called the quantum concentration. That's basically, uh, you know, if I take if I take the atom and I confine it into a box that's the size of the thermal de Broglie wavelength, that's pretty much the smallest concentration I can get for the atom. If I go any lower than that, sorry, if I go any smaller than that, if I try to squish the atom into a smaller size, I really better be taking into account quantum mechanics. On the other hand, if I have, uh, if I'm going to have a gas now of atoms where I'll have more concentration than that, uh, then I won't have to worry about quantum mechanics quite so much. Okay. Any questions? Might become more clear on the other side here. So the partition function of a single atom in a single box, 
which is we're going to build up an ideal gas. We don't have a, a gas yet. One atom, then we'll do many atoms, that will become a gas. NQ is defined as a quantum concentration. So basically, here's the physics of it. Okay? If I make the box large, and I put a few atoms in it, and the atoms are so dilute that their wave functions don't really overlap so much, then I don't have to worry about quantum mechanics so much. If I make the concentration uh, so that I'll have to worry about quantum mechanics, that means I've taken the box and I've squished it down, and the atoms start to have their wave functions overlap. I have to worry about interference effects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the ideal gas is a gas of particles that are not interacting, and we're also going to assume they're in the classical regime. They're dilute, so there's no interactions between particles, and they're dilute so that there's no, we don't want these, these wave functions to be having interference effects. Are there any questions about that? Okay. So now we're ready to build up an actual ideal gas. Okay. To get a gas, we need several different atoms. So let me build up many atoms in different boxes first. What we really want, we're, gonna, we're building up to many atoms in the same box. But start small, think big. So we just derived the partition function for one atom in one box. I'm going to copy that several times. Then I get an atom in a box next to another atom in another box, another atom in another box, and so on. That's many atoms, each in their own different box. Each of them has this partition function, Z1, that we just derived. Because it's quantized in that box. So Z1, 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 Z1. The total, okay, so if I multiply all those partition functions together, I get the total partition function. So here's the question are you allowed to do that? You actually get to prove this on your homework, right? You get to prove that the way to get a bigger partition function from two smaller systems is to multiply their two partition functions. So it turns out that the total partition function of all those boxes together is Z1 to the N. Z1 times Z1 times Z1, basically a Z1 for every box you have. So here, can you, can you do that? Can you multiply these guys? Uh, a single partition function is always the sum over all states, e to the minus energy of each state divided by tau. Think the big system, okay? Think the total system. So this is really sum over all the states in the individual boxes which I'm going to label by S1 for box 1, S2 for box 2, okay, some of the states individually, of e to the minus, well, what's the total energy of all the boxes? That's what I need in there, right? The total energy of all the boxes is E1 plus E2 plus E3, okay? Here's where the non-interacting assumption comes in that I can just add up the energies individually like that. Okay. So another way to rewrite this, okay, since I have e to the energy plus another energy plus another energy, that's really e to the minus es1 over tau times e to the minus es2 over tau times the other one, right? So I can take each of these summations, and since they're independent, right, I'm doing a sum over s1 independent of a sum over s2, but here's the only term that has s1 in it, right? So this is sum over s1 e to the minus s1 over tau that summation times the next summation, sum uh, over S2 of e to the minus S2 over tau times the next summation. Do you see what I did? I took the, the big summation, broke it up into all the little summations, right? This is really several summation symbols here. 
and then I pull the summation symbol through, and they, they stop whenever they encounter their own symbol, right? So a summation here over S1 corresponds to that guy. Summation over S2 corresponds to the exponential that has that symbol in it, and so on. Do you believe this is legal? Okay. So, there, we're done, okay? <coughs> this guy right here in the parentheses is Z1. This guy here is Z2. This guy here is Z3. I just showed that the big partition function is all the little partition functions multiplied together because they're independent. So altogether, since I had identical systems, Z1 is Z2 is Z3. So the big partition function Z is Z1 to the N. Any questions about how that happens? Are you sure? Okay. This is really one of your homework problems, so copy that down. And here, this, I just love this. This is an actual figure in your textbook. Figure 3.8, atoms of different species in a single box. Look at that. Doesn't that just inform you of everything? I kid you not, that's the actual figure. Anyway, that's... It's actually black and white. Atoms of different species in a single box, right there. Okay, anyway, I make fun of that because I remember studying that and going, why did you waste ink? <laughs> what was that? Maybe, maybe the two triangles are the same. Because really, Adam looks like an average So, there you go. Adam's a different species in a single box. So, all right, why did they draw this figure? It's because we can generalize this. We had many atoms <laughs> in different boxes. So, on this, some of the symbols change. <laughs>
okay, as far as how you do statistical mechanics in the system. Now what I want to do, though, is I want to consider the ideal gas where I'm going to stick atoms of the same species in a single box. Okay, now all the symbols are the same. So the same box, same particle many times in the same box. Stuff them all in there, don't do it too tightly. I want to stay in the classical regime where the concentration is low. Concentration is low means it's dilute, means the box is big. Now, since I have identical particles, I can't tell the difference between this guy being in energy one and this guy being in energy two and switching those two particles. If they're identical particles and I switch them, I can't tell the difference, right? Identical particles, switch them out. So the problem with that is in physics, if you can't tell the difference, there is no difference. Okay, it's like saying there is no spoon, right? Okay, you can laugh. All right. So there's no difference when I switch out two identical particles. So I need to be a bit more careful with the partition function. That's what that means. Okay. Means that if I can't tell the difference between those two, I need, I need to take out those factors from the partition function. It means I counted some things extra in this case. So if I try to use the z1 to the n, I'll be off by, it turns out, a factor of n factorial which goes the following way. Let's say that I have one energy, another energy, another energy. Okay, so these are my energy levels. Let's just say I order the energy levels as E sub alpha, E sub beta, E sub gamma, and so on. And say I have three particles in the system. Okay, and I'm going to let them be at different levels. I have three ways to choose who's in this energy level. Then I have two ways to choose who's in that energy level. Then I have one way to choose that. But I, I can't tell the difference, right? So there's all these different ways, 3 times 2 times 1. Or in general, if I have n particles, it's going to be n factorial. But I can't tell the difference between any of those configurations. Basically, I take a state, stop it, switch any two particles or any four particles around. I can't tell the difference. Therefore, there is no difference. Therefore, I need to divide out by that factor. Does that make sense? the partition function is trying to tell me what's the, the weighting factors here of the different states. So it's really, the, the big Z, okay, is Z1 to the N divided by N factorial when we go to the ideal gas of identical particles. Okay. So here it is. There's the ideal gas partition function. The dilute non-interacting particles, meaning they're in the classical limit. So basically, sorry, here's a little bit of fine print here. When they're dilute like that, the chances of any two particles being in the same energy state is pretty negligible. Um, if I allow for two particles being in the exact same energy state, then that's, sorry, not just energy, but energy and state. Okay. So mm, that makes things a little bit harder if I want to worry about that. We'll worry about this second line here. When it's chapter five, we start looking at Fermi and Bose gases. And we'll get down to this, the quantum level. So that's, sorry, that's, that's the end of this, this ideal gas partition function. So we've derived it. The ideal gas partition function is Z1 to the N divided by N factorial. Any questions about that part? Okay. So here's a question. If I left off this factor, 
how much would it matter? <laughs> okay. What's it? How? Let me let me say this a different way. What quantities is it going to bother? Which one? Okay, free energy entropy. Well, that's a good question. Does it does it affect the averages?